0: Welcome to the Irish Spark Podcast. For this episode, we have a conversation with British trade unionist and train driver Alex Gordon about the working class's decision to leave the European Union. Lexit, which is the left wing exit of the UK from the EU, is a materialist look at the reasons why the majority of the population voted to leave and is distinct from Brexit in that it isn't focused on racism or xenophobia as the small minority of nationalists would have us believe. The Lexit argument is entirely absent from the popular public discourse. So we hope you find this conversation a refreshing break from what you've been exposed to in the mainstream media for the last few years. Okay, so uh, welcome, Alex. It's been a long day, and thanks very much for, for doing this. Would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, hi, James. So I'm Alex Gordon. I'm a trade unionist from the... Rail
1: Maritime Transport Union, the RMT in Britain, currently the branch secretary of the Paddington number one branch of the RMT. I'm a working train driver, that's my professional occupation, so I'm very involved in trade union disputes and struggles in Britain generally and specifically in the rail and transport industry. And I'm here in Lusty Beg, this Betty Sinclair Witness School, because we're having a very engaged and interesting discussion this weekend with trade unionists from the Republic of Ireland and the North, and one or two like myself from Britain, uh, around the whole impact of Brexit on the border region and uh, on the northern north of Ireland and the Republic more generally. And also, I'm here to talk about the arguments that have taken place and are continuing to take place in the British trade union movement about Brexit, about the EU and the hopes and fears of working class people in Britain around what's happening at the moment and what we hope is gonna happen in the next few weeks. So it's a really interesting time to have these discussions. And you know, there's a lot of people here with, some of them with probably quite different views as you'd expect with people coming from different communities. And we're discussing the key matters that affect our class in a disciplined and respectful way, which is very pleasing. I'm here talking really about a perspective as a trade unionist from London, a British trade unionist on Brexit. My union has had a position for a number of years of opposition to the policies and treaties and institutions of the European Union. We're quite unusual in that respect in the British trade union movement and indeed in in the Irish trade union movement, you won't find many unions with a similar position to ours. There are one or two with similar euro-critical or EU-critical positions, I believe, but we adopted a, a policy around 2010 as a union calling for a referendum on Britain's membership of the European Union. And we adopted a position that we would campaign to leave the European Union in the event of a referendum. And we did that in 2016, along with a couple of other trade unions in Britain. And Nipsa, the Northern Ireland Public Sector Workers' Union. So we stand out somewhat from the official position of the British TUC. I mean, we're totally opposed to the official position of the British TUC, which is a position that we think is not supported by most trade unionists. And in fact, they're not really interested in what most trade unionists think. The TUC at its last, the British TUC at its last Congress, which took place in September last year, 2018, adopted a policy of calling for a second referendum on Britain's membership of the EU, something that's not supported by a substantial number of people in the trade union movement or indeed in the population at large. It's been very heavily hyped by well-financed campaigns, various AstroTurf campaigns that have been set up in the last 18 months, two years, and it's supported by a number of Blairite politicians and some Tories, but it's not a position that's has any weight in the trade union movement. The TUC nevertheless decided to advocate a second referendum as part of their general counsel statement at last year's TUC. We were the only union to vote against that. And that's kind of been our consistent <laughs> position of really opposing the attempts by the TUC leadership to foist a pro-EU, pro-single market policy on the trade union and labour movement in Britain. So... We're not exactly flavour of the month when it comes to the trade union tops
0: at Congress House. When we normally think of Brexit and those who want to leave and the Brexit vote, it's always from a generally a right wing perspective. What's unique about yourself and the particular campaign that you're involved in through your trade union is that you want to leave the EU from a left wing perspective.
1: Yeah, well, I think this came up this afternoon when we were discussing this issue in the school you know up until historically the position of the British Labour Party and the trade union movement was of opposition to Britain's membership of the European Economic Community and that also held true for the Irish Labour Party believe it or not and the Irish trade union movement the Irish Confederation of Trade Unions that was the case right the way through the 70s and up until the 1980s the Change in Britain took place officially around 1988. At that year's Congress in September 1988, uh, the guest speaker was the European Commissioner Jacques Delors, who chose his moment well. It was a couple of years after the British trade unions had suffered the shattering defeat of the miners' strike, the introduction of anti-union Laws, very harsh anti-union laws by Margaret Thatcher in the wake of that strike and the defeat of the miners, the sequestration of the National Union of Seamen, which effectively took unlawful strike action to protect its members' wages in 1987, the smashing of the printers' unions in the Wapping dispute and the Warrington dispute in 1986. So there'd been a succession of shattering defeats for the trade union movement in Britain. And there was the prospect of seemingly endless years of Tory government introducing more and more draconian anti-union laws aimed at making it impossible for workers to take strike action aimed at extremely restrictive balloting conditions, aimed at reducing the rights of shop stewards in the workplace. So laws pitched up as the guest speaker at the TUC Congress in that year in, in held in Bournemouth and effectively said to the trading union delegates at the Congress, look, you guys are screwed. You're going to be done in by Thatcher. She's going to take away the workplace rights, the collective rights that you've enjoyed for a number of years. However, I can offer you an alternative. I can offer you the European Social Chapter. And if you change the line of the British Labour movement, from opposition to Britain's membership of the European Economic Community and get behind Britain's membership of the EEC, we can offer you the social chapter, which was a a series of mainly aspirations, very little concrete in the social chapter, and in particular a whole series of individual workers' rights, which would be imposed on Britain as a member state of the EEC. So, in other words, it was saying we can outflank Thatcher. And they went for it. And the big unions flipped their position, their historic position, which had been based on socialist, good socialist arguments in favour of representative democracy, distrust of the European big business club, as it was described by... uh, by generations of socialists and trade unionists in in Britain, and instead they changed the position to one of support for membership of the EEC. So from that period really, 1988, up until today, 2018, 30 years, we've had more or less continuous support from the TUC and the Labour Party for membership of the EU. Now, how that came about, or rather the, the ins and outs of uh, how how they've pursued that, is it's quite a complicated quite a complicated story. What's most uh, I think the most salient point about that is that they failed to persuade the majority of trade unionists, or indeed the majority of working class voters, of their arguments. And we saw in 2016 in the referendum on Britain's membership of the EU that a majority of working class voters and, you know, this has been analysed by a number of... There's fieldwork research to show which classes of voters voted to leave the EU and which voted to remain. And, you know, remain votes overwhelmingly came from classes A, B and C1, supervisory, managerial and above, whereas overwhelmingly C2, C3 and D sociological groupings voted to leave the EU. There's a very clear class distinction between leave voters and remain voters. And it's not not a pure line, class line on this, but it's very clear that many working class voters, most working class voters, particularly in former industrial areas, which have seen their staple industries shut down and replaced by low-wage often very, very poor retail and uh, service sector jobs deeply resent the impact that they see Britain's membership of the European Union has had. What they're looking for is a different society from the one they've got, and they have seen this as an opportunity. In 2016, they saw the referendum as an opportunity to punish the Tory party, to punish Cameron, the, the then the Prime Minister, who who called the referendum to punish him for austerity, to punish him for being a smug Tory bastard. And they seized that opportunity and inflicted a shattering defeat on... The Remain campaign. And the Remain campaign was backed by the vast majority of media outlets, the BBC, Channel 4 News. It was backed by The Guardian. It was backed by The Times. It was backed by many of the newspapers, not all of them. It was backed by the big money. So it was backed by Goldman Sachs. It was backed by Morgan Stanley. It was backed by the big American banks in the city of London who owe their Activities to Britain being a portal into the European Union for financial services. It was backed by everyone from the General Secretary of NATO to the General Secretary of the World Bank and the IMF. They all lined up, you know, President Obama, the lot, everyone, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Pope, they were all lined up uh, telling people to vote to remain in the EU. And there was a refreshing and gigantic fuck you given by the given by the electorate and you know I think that was it's really both denigrated by many commentators who've spent the last two and a half years since the referendum attributing malign intentions to those who voted to leave the EU you know the, the, the kind of stereotypical abusive images that you'll see in newspapers cartoon images of leave voters as sort of shaven-headed, Neanderthal, knuckle-dragging, racists. This was 17.4 million people who voted to leave an organisation which, which has neoliberalism running through its veins in its DNA. And they want a different future. It doesn't mean they're all socialists by any means but it does mean that they're rejecting a form of capitalism which has inflicted a great deal of pain on working class communities in living memory in the last 25, 30 years. So what we're saying when we say that there's a left-wing case for Brexit is that the traditional position, the historic position of the British Labour movement was always to oppose membership of the European Economic Community. That was because, as People like Tony Benn put it, if you can't control those who are making decisions on your behalf, you're not living in a democracy. The European Union is not a meaningful democracy. The European Central Bank is not controlled by the people of Europe. The Commission are appointed commissioners, the the so-called European Parliament is a plastic parliament that's been set up to provide a a facade, a theatre, window dressing for a project that is really about corporate power, corporate lobbying and undiluted profiteering and neoliberalism. So we don't think that that's a particularly difficult argument to make what's distressing is how few people on the left have understood their own history. It's certainly the case that since the 2016 referendum, there's been a big upsurge in people of a leftish persuasion who would regard themselves or describe themselves as being on the left, who've taken a very militant remain position on membership of the EU. And that's not something that we really saw before the referendum. I mean, I've been... As a trade unionist commenting and campaigning against EU legislation, which has led to the privatisation of railways for 20 years. And up until 2016, if you even tried to have a conversation with many people on the left about EU liberalisation directives, which were leading to the... Privatization and liberalisation of publicly owned railways in country after country across Europe, they changed the subject or glazed over. Uh, all of a sudden, in the last two and a half years, we've seen this kind of fanatical obsession from some, not all, but from some on the liberal left who've identified the EU as being the font of tolerance and internationalism and they've attributed all sorts of attributes to the European Union, which is the precise opposite of what it really represents. It's a very, very strange phenomenon, and it's been commented on by a number of people, not just not just me. But I think there's something perhaps going beyond politics in the realm of mass psychology that needs to be looked at when you're seeing this phenomenon that's just taken place. Absolutely extraordinary that you can have people who claim to believe in the rights of migrants and refugees, campaigning in favour of remaining in an organisation, the European Union, which has a fortress Europe policy and is responsible directly for the death and the drowning of countless unknown numbers of African and Middle Eastern migrants and refugees in the Mediterranean. There's no logical way to explain this bizarre attachment that they've
0: developed towards the European Union. It's a very interesting phenomenon.
1: Mm.
0: It seems like what you're saying is it's for economic reasons that the working class voted to leave and not that they're stupid or whatever the knuckle-dragging narrative that you spoke about. And it seems that you're also uh, against any inter-ailing in, in <laughs> Europe, eh, Alex? <laughs> Yeah, attacking the interrailing kids, eh?
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I hate those interrailers and those gap year kids, yeah. No, I mean, I went inter-railing, I'll let you know that. I, I went inter-railing when I was 18. Me and three of my mates got a, a £100 interrail ticket, which is what it cost, I think, in 1983, and headed off through uh, Amsterdam and Hamburg and Munich and various other places until we uh, ran out of money. So, no, we're not against interrailing, but the, I, think, I think, seriously, yeah. the, the, the point you make about the economic objections to the policies of the European Union is very significant, and it's underestimated to a great extent when neoliberals blithely talk about the EU economic success, and I mean, the, the, the fact is that the EU is presided, particularly since the Maastricht Treaty of 1992, which created a single currency. The EU has presided over record levels of unemployment in Europe for a record period of time. I mean, this is worse than the 1930s. You've had permanent unemployment around about the 10% mark in Ireland since it joined the European Union. You've had permanent unemployment of around 10% in France since the 1992 Maastricht Treaty. You've got a situation in countries like Greece where I think, uh, I just read a couple of days ago, unemployment last month increased by another 2%, but that's almost impossible to believe because the unemployment levels in Greece are at levels which almost makes the society impossible to, to function. I think I saw, was it nearly half
0: of people on under 30
1: were, yeah. were unemployed? Youth, so youth unemployment is around about 50%. Yeah. And when you consider that many young Greek people have already left, so that's the ones that are left, yeah. are 50% unemployed. So it's it's horrific. So the, the economic critique of the EU is made by workers who can see the evidence for their eyes and and, and that's true but I want to just say something else that I don't think it was just about economics I think the critical question is about democracy and sovereignty and when research was carried out in the wake of the referendum into the reason for people voting to leave the main reason given by voters of all classes was the question of sovereignty now, what is meant by sovereignty is, of course, a deeper question. But it's certainly related to the fact that people believe that an organisation that is unelected and which has no discernible connection with their communities should not be taking decisions about those communities. There is a long historical tradition of the fight for democratic rights in Britain, going back to the Chartists and the Toll Martyrs, and even before to uh, radical Republicans in the 18th and early 19th century, and the fight for democracy is taken very lightly by some people on the left. They've forgotten that our mothers and fathers had to fight for the right to vote. They had to fight for MPs to have salaries so that it wasn't simply the preserve of men of independent means. They had to fight for constituencies to be of relatively equal sizes. They had to fight all the way through this process for the franchise to be extended to beyond men of property, first of all, all working men, and then to eventually women, first of all, property women, and then Finally, in 1928, to all adult women. So this whole process of struggle is part of our history. And it might might sound romantic to you, but I don't believe it is. I think people resent. They have a folk memory, they have a historical memory of these struggles. Even though they're constantly being encouraged by our media and our poor education system uh, to forget these histories. It's very difficult to completely wipe them out. And I think the vote was also a vote to recover control, to take back control, which was the slogan that the very smart people who were running the official Leave campaign picked on. That really chimed with a lot of people. We don't want faceless bureaucrats, non-entities, the likes of Donald Tusk or Jean-Claude Juncker, making decisions about our future, we want to be able to sack the person who makes decisions about our future. And I think that, that, that was really critical.
0: In order to leave the EU and why people decided to leave the EU for economic and sovereignty and democracy, it's also, I think, to say that how can we stay within the economic system that has caused this downturn and all of that? Is that a question that comes up Well, I think the vote to leave
1: the EU was also a vote for an economic alternative. So it wasn't simply a vote to annul some treaties. It was a vote for a different way of life, a different economic future, a different society. People wanted change. And this is why really the... The current political crisis in Britain can't simply be resolved on the 29th of March or a couple of months later if they extend Article 50 till June, simply by a tick on a in a box saying we've formally now left the EU. What is necessary is also a change of government because, you know, Theresa May, she's a caretaker prime minister who's not even able to take care. She just spent the last two and a half years being humiliated by her own party, by European negotiators who she's failed to get anything out of, by the the opposition led by Jeremy Corbyn in the House of Commons. So she's a deeply inadequate prime minister, even in kind of bourgeois terms. But the crisis that the British political class face will undoubtedly lead to a general election in the near future. And I can't see any way that they can keep the show on the road after Brexit takes place. And if Brexit doesn't take place, then her own party will implode or explode. So we're going to have a, an election and we need to win a change of government. We need a left-led government. It may not be a socialist government. It may not be fulfil our maximum demands, but it's going to provide a complete break with the failed neoliberal policies of the past 35, 40 years. That is Corbyn's unique selling point. He's a unique politician in that sense. He's become leader of a political party, which the Labour Party, which you know is a, it's an imperialist party with a, a long history of supporting wars and engaging in bellicose wars all over the all over the world. He himself is a anti-war campaigner. He's a, an anti-imperialist. He's opposed to renewal of Britain's nuclear programme, all of which is not reflected in Labour's own policies, by the way. But the fact that he's risen to this position in this party at this particular time is remarkable. In, in terms of his record on the EU, you know, he spent his entire political career campaigning against the Lisbon Treaty, The Maastricht Treaty, the Amsterdam Treaty, the European Economic Community. He was elected to Parliament in 1983 on a manifesto, as a Labour MP, on a manifesto which said if Labour formed the government following that election, they would take Britain out of the European Economic Community. So he's had a continuous history, up until the point that he was elected leader of the Labour Party, of being opposed to the European Union. It just so happens that Unfortunately, when he was elected leader of the Labour Party, we uh, lost one of the most able campaigners for Brexit, for Lexit, for a left-wing Brexit, because he was effectively silenced by being leader of a party which had a, a remain position. It was just, you know, an accident, a quirk of, uh, of history. But a Jeremy Corbyn-led Labour government following... Brexit would give the opportunity for major changes, not just in Britain, but in the economic and social policies of countries right across Europe and beyond Europe. This is why Theresa May has been locked in negotiations with Eurocrats for the last two years trying to ensure that the terms of the withdrawal agreement when Britain leaves the EU will mean that any future Labour government would have their hands tied and would be unable to, for example, use public funds to invest in industry through a a green investment bank, which is one of Labour's proposals in their last general election manifesto, is to set up a publicly funded bank which would direct capital investment into Green New Deal projects for renewing people's homes, renewable energy, solar panels, a whole sort of industry that would be labour-intensive, create a lot of jobs and possibly lead to a lot of exports as well. So this would not be possible, these kind of proposals, under Theresa May's withdrawal agreement. There are clauses in the withdrawal agreement which specifically would prevent a Labour government from... Renationalising railways, from taking the postal services back into public ownership, from using state aid to invest in an industry. These are the type of things which Theresa May is trying to lock down. That's why it would be far preferable from a socialist's point of view if Britain left without a deal rather than with Theresa May's deal. And the critical question is, how we can
0: get a general election and get rid of the Tories as soon as possible. Alex, thanks very much. It's been a long day. Yeah, I won't keep you any longer. You've spoken a lot already. So thanks very much for your time. Good speaking to you, James. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Irish Spark Podcast. If you like the show, please give us a review on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening from. It really helps us out and helps the show to reach more people. If you'd like to get in touch, please send us an email at theorishspark at gmail.com we would love to hear from you follow us on social media we are on twitter, facebook and instagram the details are in the description we hope to see you again in a couple of weeks for our next episode take care